finding your place, let me ask you a question. What did you want to be when you grew up? Like think back to when you were a kid. What did you want to be? Maybe first or, or second grade you. Now, some of you, you're old, and so don't hurt yourself too hard trying to think back. You're like, what did I want to be when we rode dinosaurs to school? Um, <laughs> but think about it for a sec, right? What did you want to be? My daughters, I asked them what they wanted to be. They're four and seven years old, and they said they want to be doctors. And I thought, I don't make enough money for that. Um, <laughs> but maybe when you get older, you can take care of me, right? Uh, so pray for me. Um, what did you want to be? Most kids, they grew up wanting to be like astronauts, police officers, firemen, veterinarians, until they learned that they had to take Lassie out to pasture. And then they're like, "Never mind. No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> what about you? I'll tell you what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the third baseman for the Houston Astros. That's what I wanted to be. I played baseball in high school, and you wonder, was he any good? No, that's why I'm here right now. <laughs> but I had dreams. Like, I wanted, to, I, I wanted to do something great with my life. What about you? What did you want to do? Now, maybe you, like me, your life didn't turn out the way that you imagined, because never in a million years would I have ever imagined that I would be here today a pastor of a church. Now, see, growing up as a, as a kid, um, my grandparents, they raised me in church. I used to always say this. I had, a, I had a drug problem. My grandparents drug me to church. Anybody else in the room? Right? But then I actually left the church around the age of 14 or 15. I said, I'm never going back there again. And then I developed an actual drug problem where I spent many years uh, on drugs, addicted to multiple drugs as well, living my life partying, sex, drugs, rock and roll. I was in a punk band and traveled and was in bands all across the country. And then I lost everything and the addiction got the best of me. And I was living in homes, abandoned houses all across Southeast Texas, homeless. And that's when I got arrested. And then I got an eight-year felony probation sentence for possession of crystal meth and multiple other drugs, spent 90 days in jail. When I got out, I was on paper and I thought my life was over. Never gonna accomplish anything in my life. I've ruined and wasted my life. So I'm sitting at home and then that's when I meet this, this girl and her past was very similar to mine, you know, drugs, sex, partying. But then she met Jesus and she called me and she said, Byron, I want you to take me to church. And I thought, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I have no desire to go to church, right? But she was cute, so I agreed. Okay, yeah, sure, I'll go to church. Thinking I would just go to church one time with her and that would be over. All of you single men, I know your tricks, right? And you're like, oh, sure, I'll go to church with you. Um, but that Sunday, I gave my life to Jesus. And yeah. That was 20 years ago, and I've been going to church with that girl ever since. Her name's Ashley. She's right here on the front row. She's my lovely wife now. And we've been serving in, in ministry together. And, but I never imagined I would be a pastor. I mean, like, like me. And that was up until the summer of 20, 2005 when I went to a prayer meeting, a men's prayer meeting, three-day prayer retreat in Moss Hill, Texas, Anybody ever been out to Moss Hill, Texas? Yeah, you got out, praise God, right? 
And I'm sitting in this prayer meeting, and on a Saturday afternoon, they're like, hey, we want you to go and get some time with God and ask God what, you, what he would want for your life. And so I was like, well, I mean, I've never really prayed before, and I don't really know what I'm doing. I've never been at a prayer meeting, so I guess I'll just go out in the woods and listen to see if the Lord speaks. I didn't even know if God did speak, right? And if he did, what did he sound like? Did he speak in King James English? Was he like, Byron, I beseecheth thee, right? Did he sound like James Earl Jones in, you know, The Lion King? Like, what does God sound like? I didn't know. And so I'm sitting out in the, in the woods, and I'm praying, and that's when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I just got this burden. It's like a fire just lit in my heart. Old preachers would call it an unction. Some of you know it today as a call. And the Lord spoke tenderly to me, not audibly, but gently into my, my, my spirit. And he said, Byron, I want you to be a pastor. And immediately I'm like, God, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> like, I don't know what y'all smoking up in heaven, but I, it ain't no way too much incense going on around the throne room right now because you are off. I don't, I think you called, and there's no, no way. Like, who would ever want to go to a church where I'm the pastor, Right. I mean, I'm a drug addict, recovered, like I'm covered in tattoos. I've been in punk bands, traveling. I mean, I am on probation. I flunked out of college twice because I'm an overachiever. Like, (laughs) who would ever want to go to a church where I'm the pastor? Maybe some of you, you feel like that. You feel disqualified. You, You feel... Like your life is over. You, you feel like you're never going to be good enough or measure up or because of your past, it's, it's just, you're just too far gone. You, you feel as if you will never accomplish anything great for God. But can I tell you what I've learned along my journey is that God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That, that God calls us not because we're awesome, but because he is. That God calls us not for our glory, but for his glory. And that God will use your story for his glory. That God doesn't call us because we're good. God calls us because he's good. God calls us not because of who we are, but because who he is. And God does not call the qualified, but rather he qualifies the called. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about ministry. The sermon title today is, Are You Called Into Ministry? And now, before you answer like I did all those years ago, where you say, no, no way, I am not, I will not. It's not who I am. I'm not called. I want you to remember that God doesn't call the qualified, but rather he qualifies the called. And nobody throughout the Bible, I think best illustrates this than the man we're going to see today, the Apostle Paul. Because today is the day that Paul receives the call. We're in Acts chapter 13. But let me ask you, in our studies so far in Acts, who's Paul? Like today you would know him as the Apostle Paul, who wrote one-third of the New Testament's who planted churches, who who was a missionary to the uttermost regions of the earth. He is the apostle Paul. But when we first meet him, his name's not Paul, it's, it's Saul. And he was not a preacher, he was a persecutor 
of the church. He, he was not a missionary. He was a murderer. Whenever we first meet him in, earlier in the book of Acts, he actually led a persecution trying to destroy the early church that led to the death of an early deacon named Stephen. He was not the apostle Paul. He was Saul, the persecutor, the hater of the church, the murderer. And then like me and like you and like all of those in this room, he met Jesus and everything in his life changed. I'm sure Paul never imagined he would end up becoming the person he was because God has a better plan for all of us than we have for ourselves. And so what I want to talk to you today is I want you to know that you're called. And so the sermon title today is, Am I Called Into Ministry? Now, before you say no, let me read the Bible and let's get through the end of the message and then I'll let you decide. But here's the text for us today. We'll start in verse 25 and then we'll work our way. We got four verses. Here we go. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with him John, whose name was Mark. Now, when the church was in Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on and they sent them out. Now listen, we got a short section today, only four verses. But if you've been here at Redemption for a while, you know a short section does not mean a short sermon, right? Not necessarily the same thing, okay? But we'll do our best to get you out of here before the Super Bowl tonight. What I always say is this, is in order to understand the text, you have to understand the? Here we go. And so at Redemption, we are a expository church, which means we just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to do our multiply halftime kickoff sermon series. So we're excited about that and what God's doing. But in the meantime, we are in our 35th week in our study through Acts. We're in Acts chapter 13 today. There's 28 chapters. So we're just going to be walking through this book until we either get into the new building, depending on how well Multiply goes, or until Jesus comes back. But either way, we're just walking through the book of Acts. And here's what we've seen so far in the book of Acts, is that we've seen Jesus give the disciples what is known as the Great Commission. In Matthew's gospel, it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Speaking of, baptism Sunday, two weeks from now, this girl's getting baptized. Hey, can we give it up for those who are getting baptized? Let's go. If you have not signed up, you can sign up today. I'm so excited to see what God's gonna do in your life. But in the book of Acts, Luke, the different author of Acts, here's what he says, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel was always meant to move forward. It starts in Jerusalem and over the last 2,000 years, here we are at the ends of the earth at 601 Park Street in downtown Beaumont, Texas. We are the ends of the earth. So let me show you how the, the church grew from 2,000 years ago to where we're at today. The, Jesus says, go to Jerusalem. P 
Peter stands up, chapter two, preaches, 3,000 people are saved and baptized, and then all of a sudden, the church explodes with growth. A chapter later, we're at 5,000 people. The first seven chapters take place in a seven-year period, and most scholars say the church then had grown to 25,000 people. That's amazing. And then persecution comes in. They're arrested, beaten, thrown in prison. Saul murders Stephen, and then the church flees. They have to leave. They they, they leave their homes and everything because it was too dangerous for them to stay, which leads to the Judea and the Samaritan ministries we saw in Acts chapter 9. Philip rolls into town with signs and wonders, preaching. People are healed. Revival breaks out. More people are saved and baptized, and the church continues to grow. But up until this point, every single Christian was actually Jewish until Acts chapter 11, whenever Cornelius gets saved. And then Peter's like, what do I do with this guy? He's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's far from God. But he's been filled with the Spirit. He's been baptized. He's welcomed into the church. And in Acts chapter 11, we meet the very first Gentile church, the church in Antioch. And it's filled with Jews and Gentiles as they're learning to worship Jesus together. And that's when we begin the end of the world ministries. And so right now, we're at a transition point in the book of Acts. We've seen the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And now we're transitioning to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 13 marks the beginning of the end of the earth ministries. And you're going to see a shift also from Peter being the main character to Paul, who is now the new main character as he continues to take the gospel to the furthest reaches of the world. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now the ends of the earth. Now, question, what does that have to do with you or me or any of us in this room? Let's go back to what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Here's what he says, and you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Who was Jesus talking to? I'll tell you, originally he was talking to the 11, but ultimately he was talking through the 11 to you. You will be his witness. You will fulfill the great commission. You will tell the world about Jesus. You will go out and you will change the world. Here's the way that I want you to know is that every Christian has a calling, that God has a calling on your life because he wants for you to fulfill the great commission. Listen, God did not save you to fill a seat. He saved you to fulfill a purpose. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. God has a destiny for your life. There is something that only you are uniquely qualified to do. And so God has called you because if you are a Christian, you have a calling of God on your life. There is a ministry inside of you that is waiting to be released because God does not qualify the called but he calls God does he calls us he calls you he calls me every Christian has a calling and so what I want to do is I want to help you discover what that looks like today so I'm gonna ask four questions kind of like qualities of the call four questions you have to answer to discover what that call of God in your life here's the first question First question is this, are you gifted? Some of you immediately are like, nope, not me. <laughs> Definitely not gifted. Nothing special about me. Let me read the Bible and let's talk about what the Bible says. Here's what it says. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. 
Now when there were church in Antioch, there was prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul to round out the bunch. Now, normally when we read the names of people in the Bible, we just read them really fast and we just move on to what we think is important. Uh, But can I tell you that there is no word that is wasted in the word and that every name tells a story and you can learn a lot when listening to their stories. So let me introduce to you who uh, this group of people were. I mean, first we meet Saul. We know him now as the Apostle Paul. And then we meet Barnabas. Who's Barnabas? Was he a prophet, an apostle? Was he a, a teacher? No, he was Barnabas. Barnabas was just an ordinary guy who loved the church. He was an encourager. That was Barnabas. And whenever the church was looking for somebody to disciple Paul because he had already murdered most of the leaders and everybody was like, I don't really believe this guy, right? I don't want him in my small group. No, like bow your heads to pray. No, (laughs) I am not gonna close my eyes with you around. Barnabas said, I'll take him. And Barnabas personally discipled and mentored Paul. And he was not an apostle. He was not a pastor. He probably served in the parking lot He probably served in the production booth. He was just an average dude in the church. What about John Mark? Well, we met John Mark for the first time last week. His mom was the one leading the prayer meeting when Peter got out. That prayer meeting happened at Mary, the mother of John Mark's house. John Mark was a teenager, maybe 16, 17 years old. This is why Redemption Youth is so incredibly important, parents, to get your kids in Redemption Youth. Because you never know what God's going to call on that child's life. But then it, we, meet, we meet this guy. His, um, his name's Niger, which means black. So there's Jews, and then there's Greeks, and then there's this man. Where's he from? He's from modern-day Libya, North Africa. He's black but yet he was in the early church. The early church had always been incredibly diverse. And then we meet this other guy, um, there's Simon, who was called Niger. And then we also meet Lucius of Cyrene. He's from an island between Greece and modern-day Turkey. Throw a map up on the screen so you can see all of this. And then there's Menean, who is the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which we met the Herods last week. This wasn't Herod, Ant- this wasn't Herod Agrippa. This was his dad, Herod Antipas. This is the guy who killed John the Baptist, and sentenced Jesus during his trial. Some of your translations is going to say that he was the foster brother of Herod. That's because he grew up in the palace. He grew up in wealth and in opulence, and he grew up rubbing elbows with the highest elites that there were, both religious and Roman. And then you have Saul. Why do I show you all of this? because I want you to see how diverse the early church was. Not only diverse in ethnicity, which is what we most think about. Yes, there was Greeks and Jews and Africans, and they were all gathered together, and they were all serving within the church, and they were all united, and yet even though that they were distinct and they were different, they were still one. But at the same time, there's a diversity in their age. You have John Mark, who might be 16 years old, and then you have Simon the Cyrene, which fascinating story about this is this, is that this is the same man, many believe, who carried the cross of Jesus, Simon the Cyrene, in the book of Mark. And so he would be an older man. And then John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, by the way, did you know that? 
This is why the youth, again, is so important to include all ethnicities and all ages into it because God has a plan. And John Mark goes on and he writes the book of Mark telling the story of Jesus. But then there's, there's income. You have, you have Menean who's rich. And then you have all of the Jewish people who have lost their homes and they're living in poverty. And yet they're all united together. Why? Because they recognize that each and every one of them had a gift. Look what it says here. There was prophets and teachers. What is that? Those are spiritual gifts. I want you to know that if you're in this room and you call yourself a Christian, guess what? You got a gift. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done. It doesn't matter because God gave you a gift at the moment that you gave your life to Jesus. God gave you a spiritual gift. Just like when my daughters were born, they have two stuffed bunny rabbits. They got them on the day they were born. Why did I get them? Did they deserve it? Did they earn it? No, they got it because they're my kids. God the Father, he's a father. And he gives gifts to his kids. They're called spiritual gifts. Romans, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Dear brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Concerning what? Spiritual gifts. You know why he said that? Because some of you are uninformed. You have never been told you have a gift. You have never been told that God has uniquely given you an opportunity that he does not give anybody else to make a difference in this world. You are gifted. God has given you a gift. You are special. You are loved. You are unique. You are valued. You are gifted. How do I know? Because verse 3 says this, no one can call upon Jesus as Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The moment you give your life to Jesus, God gives you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit fills you. He seals you. He saves you. He empowers you. He gives you a gift to send you out. You have a gift. God has designed you to make a difference. You have been designed to make a difference in this world. That God does not have sideline saints. Everybody gets a gift and everybody gets in the game. This is the way that God has called the church. And he is sending us, empowering us, filling us with the spirit. And he is giving us gifts to go out and make a difference. God designed you to make a difference in this world. He doesn't want you just to fill a seat. He wants you to fulfill his plan for your life. He gave you a gift. You say, well, how do I know what that gift is? Best way you can discover your gift is by joining us on the first Sundays of each month at what we call Next Steps. Next Steps is your opportunity to get on a team, to get in a group, and to get in the game. And as you begin serving, you will begin discovering What's your spiritual gift is? And so you're gifted. The second question is this, are you guided? When Paul received the call, what was he doing? Was he in a cemetery, seminary, I mean, where faith goes not to live but to die? Was he parsing Hebrew and Greek words? Was he reading a commentary, a lexicon, quoting the book of Lamentations? No. What was, he, was he in a homeless ministry or a food pantry? No. Those things are good things. But that's not where calling comes from because God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. What was Paul doing when he got the call? He was worshiping. Look what the text says. It says, while they were worshiping and fasting, 
the Holy Spirit said. You want to hear from the Spirit? Get time in the presence of the Spirit. You want to know, God, what is it that you you want for me to do? Get alone with God and let the Spirit of God begin to lead you. This is so incredibly important that we are God-guided and Spirit-led because your life is too significant to try to make decisions without the leading of the Holy Spirit. Could you imagine what your life would look like if every decision you made was God-guided and Spirit-led? This is not just for ministry. This is for life. Because I want you to understand something. There's a big difference between you going to God, asking God, here's my plans, bless them, versus you going to God and saying, God, what are your plans? Let me walk in your blessings. And so we could save ourselves a lot of heartache and struggle and trouble if we would learn to be God-guided and spirit-led in the choices and decisions we make. This is for marriage. Like, like husbands and wives, you want to be spirit-led in your marriage, right? Because you're making big decisions. Where am I going to work? What house are we going to buy? What car are we going to drive? How are we going to raise our kids? What church are we going to go into? Those are big decisions. You should not make those without being God-guided and spirit-led. When it comes to raising your kids, like, like you need a lot of the Holy Spirit. You need a double dose of the Holy Ghost if you're going to raise some godly kids in this generation and world that we are. Right, because you can bring them to church for 90 minutes on a Sunday to be discipled, but they're going to spend nine hours a week on a phone getting discipled by the world. Like, you got to be spirit-led if you're going to raise some kids who are going to change the world. And this is true for you who are single and dating. Listen to me. Like, when you're dating, you don't date for fun. As Christians, we date for a future. And so when you're finding, you're like, who am I going to date? Who am I going to go out with? Listen, you're not looking for somebody just for marriage. You're looking for somebody for ministry because you're going to be in ministry with that person, serving in the church, serving in your community. You're going to use each other's gifts to be able to follow and serve and make a difference in this world. You got to be God guided whenever it comes to who you date and who you marry. And listen to me, sis. I know that he's cute, but listen, if he don't love Jesus, he ain't going to love you. And he's not walking with Jesus. You're not going to fulfill your purpose together. Okay, because God has a call on your life and a ministry he has for you. And when God calls you, he calls your spouse because the two become one. So you got to look for being led of the spirit in every area, especially in the area of ministry. And so what are they doing in this moment? They're fasting and they are praying and they are worshiping. Why? Because ministry is born out of intimacy. Like, if you want to know what to do, first get along with God and learn who he is. And as you learn who God is, God will guide you in what he has to do for your life. Because ministry is born out of intimacy. As we pour ourselves out, God fills us back up so we can go and we can pour out again. Listen, a glass cannot spill what it does not contain. If you want to be effective in ministry, it starts with intimacy with God. Because if you don't have intimacy, your ministry is just idolatry. Because you are no longer serving God, you are serving yourself. Some of your translations are going to say, while they're worshiping and praying, it's actually going to say this, while they were ministering to the Lord. Do you know why? Because your first ministry is to God. That's your first ministry. It's, It's to the Lord. Jesus says it like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot love neighbor unless we love God first. And when we love God first, we're able to love people the best. And so first we're ministering to the Lord. 
And then as an overflow of that ministry, we're serving others. But you cannot have a ministry without intimacy with God. Can I just say, this is why the first Wednesday prayer meeting is so important at Redemption. Because every ministry that we have at this church is born by and powered through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Like without the prayer meeting, our church is nothing. But that prayer meeting, it is the fuel for the fire that God keeps pouring out and building here at Redemption. Last week, we had 300 people at a prayer meeting. That's insane. Like literally people are sitting on the floor in the altars during the worship and the message moment. But it's from that prayer ministry that we're able to go out and do actual ministry because we minister to God first and now we're filled up to serve others. There's a, a quote by a pastor named Leonard Ravenhill where he says, no man is greater than his prayer life. And I would take that one step further. I say, no marriage is greater than its prayer life. No parent is greater than their prayer life. What I would take it a step further and say, no church is greater than its prayer life. Because ministry is born out of intimacy with God. Like if you wanna know what to do, just get alone with God and he will guide you. Number three, every service today, this one has been their favorite question is, are you governed? Do you submit under spiritual authority? I told you, you're going to love it. Because as Americans, we love authority, don't we? We just love it so much. No, we're allergic to authority, right? It makes us break out in hives. Because our whole nation was founded as a rebellion. I don't need no king. Nobody can tell me what to do, right? We're going to overthrow them, throw their tea off into the harbor, and we're going to write our own declaration of independence, right? Right? We, we, don't, we don't like authority. Like even as Protestants, what's the root word for Protestant? Protest. Like even our spiritual heritage was born out of rebelling against authority. And it's creeped into our lives in all these different subtle ways to where now, anytime that there is some sort of governance or some sort of authority, like our first response is to resist it, to complain about it, to reject it to tear it down, to dismantle it. But can I just encourage you that we are not to read the Bible like Americans, we're to read the Bible like Christians. And when it comes to the teaching of the scriptures, God has placed authority over all of our lives. And so when you come to the Bible, let me just kind of lay this out for you. There's four authorities that God has instituted. The first one is the nation. Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 says, honor the emperor. He doesn't say like him, doesn't say vote for him, doesn't say endorse him. It just says to honor him. And so as believers, God has instituted a nation so that way it could promote flourishing for our lives and protection for the citizens. The second one is the family. Jesus is the head of the church, just as the husband is the head of the wife, that a husband is to love his wife like Jesus loves the church and lay down his life for his bride. And the wife is to honor, to submit, and to serve in the husband. And together, they are to submit under Jesus and his lordship. And then they have kids. And what's every parent's favorite Bible verse? Honor your mother and father. It's the one that comes with a promise, right? And then there's the work relationships, that we are to do everything we do as unto the glory of God. And then there's the church. These are four spheres of, of authority God has placed over us as believers. 
Now question, what happens if we reject authority in the nation? Well, you get 2020 and everything that's happened after. Get ready for 2024. Buckle up, okay? Because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Because why? Because we have people in authority who reject authority. What happens in a family if a husband and wife don't mutually submit, respect, and love each other? They're going to be married long. What happens if we don't teach our kids to obey governing authorities? Well, then our kids grow up to become adults who don't respect authority. And, well, that's the generation we're in right now. And so then when people come into the church... They have this idea because they've rejected authority in every other area of their life. Whenever there comes to be authority in the church, people automatically get offended. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's great. Nobody can tell me what to do. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. Can I just read to you what the Bible says? Back to Acts. Fasting and praying, it says this, 13.3, they laid hands on him and they sent him out. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9 when Paul was converted. Whenever God spoke to Aeneas to go and grab Paul and pray for him that the scales might fall off his eyes and he might see, God spoke to Aeneas and said, I have set him apart as a minister to the Gentiles and he will preach to kings. Paul got his calling in Acts chapter 9. Paul was not yet commissioned until Acts chapter 13. Do you know the gap between the calling and the commissioning? 13 years. For 13 years, the apostle Paul to the Gentiles who wrote one-third of the New Testaments, the apostle Paul, what did he do for 13 years? He submitted to the governing authorities of the local church. He served his church. He loved his church. He didn't be like, well, I got a ministry. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm just going to go out and do what I want, right? That's not what he did. Because during those times, those 13 years, he's serving the church. He's growing. He, he's, he's learning to lead. He's, 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 he's developing. He's being gifted. He's being guided. And then eventually he's being governed. And then he's going to be sent. But first, he loves the church. He's growing in the church. And people resist this. They're like, but I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's great. I'm glad that you do. But listen, nobody is attacking your identity in Christ. But you need to understand something. Is that your identity is in Christ, but your destiny is in community. You discover your destiny in community. That's where you discover your destiny. Is like Paul would not be Paul today if he did not learn to love and serve within a local church nor submit to the elders of that church. But because of that time and those seasons of preparation, God built him up, God worked on him, God developed him, and then God sent him to accomplish the call that he had on him. In Christ, you find your identity, but it is in community that you discover your destiny. That's why it's so important to be in a local church. Many people are like, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's great. But you don't, you know, you don't have to go home to have a healthy marriage. But, you know, if you don't show up to your, see your wife, then you're not going to have one, right? right? You don't have to, you know, have a parachute to jump out of an airplane, but it sure does help. <laughs> and so if you want to discover your destiny, get in a local community. And into that community, God's going to develop you, shape you, mold you, form you, transform you, and send you back out. Your identity is in Christ. 
But your destiny is discovered in community with other people. Some of you are not convinced. It's okay. So let me read you some more Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. And those who will have given up account, let them do this with joy and with not groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Okay, let's back up. He says that would be no advantage to you. What would life be like if no one respected the nation? Well, you'd have anarchy. Just so you know, God works through order. The devil works through division. And the reason we have so much anarchy in our nation today is because the devil is having his way. Because we've rejected authority. What would happen in our homes if a husband and wife rejected the authority? What would happen in the life of the kids? It would be toxic, abusive, damaging. What would happen if you go to work and there was no authority? I'll tell you what happened. You wouldn't get no paycheck. <laughs> what it would it be like if you, if you went to like Chick-fil-A and you're like, yeah, I'll have a spicy chicken sandwich. You're like, uh, we only sell spaghetti here. You're like, what? Well, we don't have any authority, so we just get to do whatever we want. Do you see how everything in society would begin to fall apart? What happens if you come to a church where there is no authority and everybody just gets to do whatever they want to do? You would have anarchy. This is why God institutes governing authorities in churches. Some of you are like, um, Byron, is there a problem? Why are you hitting this so hard? Like, did Trevor do something? Like, <laughs> are we in trouble? No, actually, I want to say thank you. Redemption is an amazing church. You guys are so easy to love. This is a joy to me. Like, I, I'm thoroughly excited every time I get to come up here. Y'all are such a blessing to me and to my wife, to my girls. Like, we have such a healthy church. This is the best season we've ever been as a church. Like, everything is up and to the right. I mean, we are so unified on what God is doing. I mean, prayer meetings are packed out. We're at four services, five services, six services on Easter. I mean, it is getting insane. Like, we're just growing, but the building is coming along, and everything's been signed, and we're getting ready to break ground. There's going to be a sign out in a couple of weeks, and we're moving and moving, and multiplies growing and kicking off, and we got new guests who are filling the place every single week. We just had 50 people go through next steps. I mean, everything is amazing right now, and that is because of God's glory, but I'm so grateful for you. So why am I hitting this? I believe it's something called preventative preaching. That I'm not going to be reactionary. I'm going to be proactive. And I'm going to walk through the Bible. And we're going to teach good doctrine so we can apply it to our lives. So that way, if and when that day comes, then we're going to know that God has placed a structure here at the church. So that way we can grow. Right now, some of you are wondering, okay, well, Byron, what about, what about you? Do you have authority? Well, I want you to know that in order for someone to be in authority, they must be under authority. Don't trust anybody who wants authority that doesn't submit under some other authority. Because that's just abuse. So let me show you how it works. Can we throw that um, org chart up here? Uh, here's how it works for us. As, as, as the lead pastor, 
Um, I am not the boss of redemption. I have overseers above me, pastors, who pastor me and Ashley, the call, the check on us, the hold us accountable. And if, for God forbid, some reason, I am disqualified, they can remove me from the pastor of this church. Okay, so I'm not the boss. Jesus is the boss, and we submit under him, and there's a board of overseers. Number two, there's a board of elders and trustees. The elders are a group of men. We got one right here on the front row who they help govern the direction, any sort of church discipline that may need to come up, preventing any sort of division, and they, they pray, and they help lead the staff along with myself. And then there's trustees. These are men and women in our church who manage the finances. So they approve the budget, they get monthly reports every single month that they go through, and then we have an accountant who's actually on staff at one of our overseers church who doubles checks all of our books every single month so that way nothing funny has happened with the money. Just so you know, me and Ashley, we don't touch anything financially here at the church. I don't even set my salary. My salary is set by the overseers along with the staff. The trustees approve everything that happens when it comes to the building and the rest of the ministries that happen here. And so we're under extra accountability. And then that leads down into our staff. So I lead our staff, and then our staff leads our ministries. Our staff is wonderful. They're amazing. Can we give it up for all of our staff and serve teams? They're so fantastic. And so I know what some of you right now, you're, you're like, okay, Byron, but what does this mean for me? Here's what it means. Alone, you can go fast, but together we can go far. Like alone, you can go fast. Like you can go real fast, but can I just tell you, fast isn't always good, right? Fast leads to shortcuts. Fast leads to burnout. Fast leads to exhaustion. And yeah, you're going so fast, but ministry was never meant to be a sprint. It's always been a marathon. And if we want to go far, we got to go together. Listen, I have never seen a Bible verse that said, and it's God's will for man to be alone. But I have seen a lot of Bible verses where God says, it is not good to be alone. We need each other. Alone we can go fast, but God is never in a hurry. I've never seen Jesus biting his fingernails because he was anxious about something. No, we don't go fast. We go far with the message of the gospel. We take it from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're not here to go fast by God's grace. We're here to go far. The best is yet to come. God's got more in store for you than you could ask, think, or imagine. Don't go it alone. We need each other. We're better together, which leads to the fourth point. As we've seen, we've been gifted, we've been guided, we've been governed, and when you add it all together, the question is, are you going? Are you going to go? Four verses, short section, not a short sermon, (laughs) because I believe this is so incredibly important that we take time to really understand the early church so that way we can stop going to church and we can start being the church. Because I think one of the greatest detriments in Western Christianity is we have made the church a place rather than a people. In the Greek, do you know what the word church is? It's ekklesia. Do you know what the word kaleo is called? 
The word ecclesia literally means the called. The ones who have been called out. And so you cannot go to church. Did you know that? You can only go as the church. Because you have been called. They've laid hands on him. And then it says, they sent him out. If you're a Christian, you have a calling. God has designed you to make a difference. He wants you to go far. And he wants you to discover your purpose. I get asked by this all the time. People wonder, what is my purpose in life? God, what is my purpose? Pastor, could you tell me my purpose? Because most of our dreams when we were kids didn't work out for us. You didn't become a doctor, a lawyer, a veterinarian, third base men for the Houston Astros. And so you're wondering, God, what is my purpose in life? God, what is your will for my life? What on earth do you have me here for? What do you want me to do? I'm gonna tell you what your purpose is. And it's gonna be so simple. It's gonna blow your mind. You're gonna get mad at me because it's so simple. So most people get paralyzed on their search for purpose. You're so worried about discovering your purpose that you don't actually do anything in the meantime. Let me tell you what your purpose is. You ready? Here's your purpose. Go all the way back to Acts 1.8. That you will be his witness from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to lead people to Jesus. God has saved you so he can send you. God has called you so he can commission you. God has filled you up to send you out. And your purpose is to lead people to Jesus, to tell the world who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and that what he did for you, he can do it for them. Tell them that there is a God who loves them, There is a God who can save them. Tell them there is a God that can forgive them, redeem them, transform them, fill them, and send them. Tell them there is a God that has a plan, that God has a purpose, and God has a destiny on their lives. Your purpose is to lead people to Jesus from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Say, well, pastor, how do I do that? How do I lead people to Jesus? Again, let's make it super simple. We do it the way the Bible tells us to do it. Start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the world. What's Jerusalem? Jerusalem is your home. Can I tell you that marriage is your first ministry? Your children are your first ministry. If you're a a mom, those girls are your ministry. So proud of you. 
the woman that God is making you become. Because girls are your ministry. You are called to be the best mom to those little girls. Your marriage is your ministry. The way you love your life looks like Jesus' love for the church. The way you love your husband. It's beautiful. That's your first. And then listen, that ministry that you have in your marriage, it's going to impact your kids. Because now they're going to have a godly example of what to look for whenever they start growing up and looking for somebody to spend their life with too. That's your Jerusalem. And then it moves into your family or your friends, your extended family, your coworkers, right? Your brothers, your sisters. I'm praying for the day that I get to baptize my brother. I've already got to baptize my mom. One day I'm gonna get to baptize my, my baby brother. Who better to tell them about Jesus than you? they know what God's done in your life. That's your Judea. And then there's Samaria. That's your community. This is why we're out. You know, like ministry doesn't happen in the four walls of a church. It was never meant to stay in Jerusalem. It was always meant to go outside of these walls. This is at the gym, between sets, striking up a conversation. This is at the coffee shop inviting someone to church or sitting down with them and answering their tough questions. This is the single mom at the grocery store with two kids in a full grocery cart fumbling about trying to figure out her cart's declined. And so you say, I got it. And then you pay for it. That's, that's ministry. That's the church. And that generosity that just overflows, that's the church. That's our community. And then lastly is, is the world. This is your ministry. We gotta get over the mindset that, that ministry is what happens on a stage. Yes, I have a calling, but so do you. I, I'm, I was called to be a pastor, but you're called to the plants. I could never preach there. I don't look good in a Nomex, but you do. My hair's too long, they made me cut it but you can. Your, your home is your ministry. This world needs Jesus. And who's gonna tell them if you don't? I want you to notice in the text, there's two people. There's those who are sent and there's those who sinned. They laid hands on them and they sent him out, but both went. There are some of you in this room who, while everyone's called to ministry, you're called into ministry. There's a difference. See, everyone's called to ministry. My job as a pastor is to help you do what God's called you to do. As you serve in the ministry, I serve those who minister. My job is to help you go further faster. That's my job. But there are some of you in this room who are called to become pastors and to become missionaries and to become leaders and to give your life 
into the ministry. Like we have two missionaries right here. Could y'all raise your hands right there? Like Paul and Barnabas, they have been sent out. And as a church, we get to send them. We have another missionary in the pipeline this time next year. They'll be in Europe planting a church. Because we raise them up and we send them out. And you may never go to Europe, but you can send them and that's the same thing. We are called to reach the world from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so what I want to be when I grew up is not what God wanted me to be when I grew up. And I'm so grateful because God's ways are better than my ways. And here's my prayer for us, redemption, when we grow up, is that every member would be a minister. Because you are gifted. You are guided. You are governed. And God wants you to Go, tell the world about Jesus. But there are those in this room who you still feel disqualified. You feel unevent, you feel like, like your life you're, did not end up, you're not where you wanted to be. You never thought you would be in the position you're in. And I'm talking about giftings and purpose and plans and, and ministry. And you're, you're sitting there thinking like, but, but I don't even know who Jesus is. Can I tell you that Jesus has a plan for your life and your life might not have turned out the way you planned, but God has a better plan and he can redeem you and he can give you a second chance. He can give you a new beginning. He can give you a fresh start and that God has a plan for your life. <laughs> 